This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, violent protests in Venezuela have grabbed the headlines all month. We'll explore the politics of the protest movement and almost a year since the death of Hugo Chavez will discuss his legacy. But first, Megan Eckhamel is away again this week, so Ray Daniel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Authorities in Mexico arrested Joaquin Guzman, known as El Chapo, or Shorty Guzman. Until his arrest this week, Guzman was considered one of the world's most powerful drug lords. Mexican Marines stormed Guzman's condo in the resort city of Mazatlan to make the arrest. Guzman is head of Mexico's most powerful drug organization, the Sinaloa Cartel. Guzman faces charges in Mexico and at least six jurisdictions in the U.S. Congressman Manlio Fabio Beltrones of Mexico's ruling party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, says Guzman should not be extradited yet. We have him and he is jailed right now in Mexico. He needs to pay for his crimes in Mexico. Afterward, he can pay for his crimes outside of the country. Mexican authorities credit U.S. intelligence with helping capture Guzman in an operation that took months to organize. Mexico's ambassador to the United States also focused on his country's drug war this week. He brought the former head of Mexican intelligence to the campus of American University to discuss the new book, The History of Mexican Narco-Trafficking. Arzak Cohen was there and has this report. Demand for drugs and a weakened Mexican state are fueling organized crime violence in Mexico. That's the crux of the latest book by Guillermo Valdez Castellano, the former director of Mexico's intelligence agency, or CISEN, by its Spanish acronym. Many blame Mexican President Felipe Calderón's crackdown on drug trafficking as the reason for increased violence in Mexico. However, Valdez paints a much more complex explanation in his new Spanish-language book, The History of Drug Trafficking in Mexico. Valdez said that Mexico City's lack of territorial control is a primary reason for the violence. He maintains that the foremost solution to the violence is rebuilding state institutions. This weakness in this part of the Mexican state facilitated a lot the growth and the empowerment of these organized crime organizations. Valdez also argues that American demand for drugs and Washington's drug policy are responsible for Mexico's drug cartel problem. When President Ronald Reagan began his war on drugs in the 1980s, he prevented drug trade in the Caribbean. That forced Colombian drug smugglers to travel through Mexico instead. Not so many drug traffickers owe so much to one man, like Ronald Reagan. Mexican ambassador to the United States, Eduardo Medina Mora, said books like Valdez's are not just academic exercises. He said they have real policy implications. If you don't have the right definition of the problem and the right understanding of the problem, then you shape the wrong policies. Human Rights Watch estimates more than 60,000 people have died during the Mexican drug war of the past seven years. Other human rights organizations say the total could be at least 100,000. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen in Washington. Pope Francis was one among world leaders this week calling for calm and negotiations to end the violence in Venezuela. The country's president, Nicolas Maduro, says at least 50 people have died in connection with the street protests that began about three weeks ago. 
Maduro invited opposition leaders to two conferences to discuss the violence, but leading opposition leader Governor Enrique Capriles Verdonsky and other leaders declined to attend. The wife of jailed opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez led a peaceful march of thousands of women. They not only asked for the release of Lopez, but also for an end to the brutality used by authorities against protesters. Human rights groups have criticized the Venezuelan government's tactics against the protesters. The Venezuelan government also formally charged at least seven members of its intelligence service, called the CBIN, with killing protesters. We will have more on the protest in Venezuela in a moment. For Latin Pulse, I'm Ray Daniel. Thanks, Ray. This week, the violent protests in Venezuela have grabbed our attention, like much of the global media. The protests have revealed splits in the opposition, led by Governor Henrique Capriles Radonsky. Now, many in the student movement and opposition look to former mayor Leopoldo Lopez for inspiration. Venezuelan authorities are holding Lopez in a military jail, and he's accused of plotting violent conspiracy and arson because of his role in organizing anti-government marches. Recently, we visited with David Smildy of the University of Georgia about conditions in Venezuela. Smildy is also with the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA. He edits that organization's blog about Venezuela. We visited with him in Wola's offices in Washington, D.C., and you may hear some of the city's traffic in the background during our conversation. So they came up with this movement called La Salida, which in, which in, in Spanish, you know, basically means both the exit and the solution. And so that, the idea was to go out in the street, you know, and they sort of tapped into the student movement that was also, you know, uh, there was considerable discontent with the situation. And, you know, the first protests three weeks ago were small. However, the, the, the National Guard and also some uh, armed collectives, you know, repressed these protests. There was violence and there were a number of students that were jailed. And that's what really brought the students out on February 12th. You know, a, a considerable protest, 10,000 or so students. And, of course, that day there, was, there were more violence and three people were killed. And that's what's really motored these protests since then, you know, every single day since then. It seemed to be dying out now, but, you know, this has basically been middle-class students from Venezuela's autonomous public universities and private universities. The messages have been very much middle-class, the, the messages of the traditional middle-class base of the opposition that focus on issues of liberty. No freedom of expression, freedom of protest, economic liberties. Uh, these issues, there's very, very little effort to sort of broaden the message, to talk about inequality, to talk about poverty, et cetera, things that might bring in the popular classes. So it's, it's really been protests of the traditional opposition base. Now, that said, no, I don't think that these protests should be dismissed that easily because it's true there, the situation is difficult and there is very broad discontent with the government, not just among these protesters, but across uh, uh, society. And it's the students in, in Venezuela that traditionally, you know, are the most mobilized sector and they're sort of the leading edge of public discontent. So, I mean, these protests, I think, should be a real call to the government and a real call to pro-government sectors that, you know, there are some really serious issues that have to be addressed. And if they don't, you know, we're probably going to be doing this again in the coming weeks and months, and the protests could, you know, if things get a lot worse, well, you know, the opposition doesn't need to change its message. And things, you know, their, their coalition could, could broaden just because there's more opposition to the government. 
Let's talk about some of those free speech issues. Uh, government has been accused of shutting down the internet in some provinces, uh, shutting off Twitter, social media, and, and other ways that the opposition has been able to protest and communicate. Doesn't that um, talk about the quality of democracy in Venezuela right now? I think, you know, I think to me, of course, the violence that has, has happened is disturbing. But really the most disturbing thing that has happened in these past weeks is that we've seen, you know, the sort of new media environment in Venezuela. And, you know, the day, the February 12th, the day of the protests, basically no broadcast media covered those protests. No, it, it, here, you know, Global Vision, which was traditionally the uh, sort of bastion of the opposition and always, you know, carried opposition actions and protests and speeches, didn't cover it. No, I turned it on and I, I, I watched an interview with an, with an athlete. And we saw the Colombian network that has set up yeah. shop in Venezuela turned off by yeah, the government yeah. because of this. Not only was it turned off, but the government didn't even come up with any sort of artifice of an explanation or saying it was an accident or we don't know what happened. Maduro said, no, this is a policy of state, and I, and I ordered it off the air. So no coverage of protests. There was no coverage of protests. That, that means, you know, uh, that uh, basically social media and Twitter uh, have been the way that protesters have communicated, the way that people have kept in touch with, uh, with protests. I mean, the way I keep in touch with, uh, with it uh, is basically on Twitter. You can you can put the you know the hashtags the protesters are using, click photos, and then just refresh the screen continue, and you can get a continual flow of photos of the protest. And that's the way people keep track of it. Now there have been reports. In fact, Bloomberg talked to people at at Twitter who said that images were being blocked. Of Venezuela, that absolutely could be the case. I I should say, however, that uh, you know I was there during the whole time. And in fact, my internet connection is through the state telephone company, and I had Twitter images the whole time. But print media is pretty much alive and well. There's a lot of opposition criticism through print media. Um, you know, uh, I think if you look at uh, broadcast media, for example, Leopoldo Lopez's speech. Uh, when he was arrested, most of it was carried by Globovision. They cut off at the beginning. You would think they would cover it from beginning to end, but they did cover most of it. Capriles' speech last Sunday was covered by Globovision and Venevision. So it's not like it's you know a complete media silence. It, it's it's a a media environment in which it's clear that the government has the upper, upper hand now. And it's quite different media environment than any time in the past. I mean, now, you know, in broadcast media, there's, there's, there's clearly uh, self-censorship and censorship going on. Let's talk about Enrique Capriles. Uh, he is the governor of one of the Venezuelan states and ran unsuccessfully twice in the past year or so uh, for president. Um, he has been invited to twice this week to peace conferences that the government wants to hold. Wola has actually said both sides should be talking. Isn't this also a failure for the opposition to, to try to ameliorate this violent protests that have been going on this month? Yeah, I think the opposition is in a tough spot with this because, you know, I think, in fact, we did, we made a, a call for dialogue earlier this week and or at the end of last week in and uh, that, that's the key. I think the, the real problem, what's happened in Venezuela, is that spaces for, you know, democratic negotiation and dialogue have been reduced. And that's why you end up getting these protests in the street, because that's the only space that people can really have their say and generate response by the government.
in the next week, we're not only going to say um, the beginning of Lent, which is a celebratory time right before Lent, but also the anniversary of Hugo Chavez's death. Is, are, are those events going to have an impact on, on this protest movement? Um, are we going to see the celebration and memorialization of Chavez um, exacerbate these problems or settle them out? Well, I, th- I think, you know, what, what seems, you know, like it's already happening is that this is going to lead these protests to peter out. I mean, I think already in the past couple of days they've really diminished. Today I didn't find anything but about protests. And now one of the things that Maduro did is he added two days to the front end of these festivals. And so he expediently did that, so added two days to the uh, uh, Carnaval, which is the big, one of the biggest festivals or, or uh, holidays of the year, and especially attractive to young people. It's a very much a party holiday. Uh, then the day after Carnival is going to be the anniversary of Chavez's death, which is going to certainly lead to uh, a number of you know, government commemorations and acts. So there's basically a week. The next week is not going to be daily life. Nevertheless, I think you know, the base issues at play are still there. You know? This issue of the repression of protests is, is not resolved. You know, the government has been pushing forward some investigations. You know, hopefully those come to a resolution and lead to some transparent public documentation of what it was that happened. The basic issues of the economy, freedom of expression, all those are still there, those sources of discontent. You know? Discontent doesn't necessarily lead to protests, but it's kind of like providing, providing the timber, providing the combustible material that any kind of spark could lead to protests. So you could end up with a sort of Thailand-type situation in which you have these recurring protests. You know? This year, you know, there's serious issues with the economy. And you know, if they're not resolved, things could get worse this year. So we could be you know, doing this again in, in, the next, in the coming weeks and months. We could be you know, uh, talking about these protests again. What haven't we discussed that you think is important? Basically, we're at the one, almost at the one-year anniversary of Chavez's passing. You know, Chavez left Maduro with a huge task, and that is he left him with a government, a governing coalition that was highly centralized around his figure. It was a coalition, a complex coalition of, of military people, of nationalists, of progressives, and of radicals. And, and of you know, poor, uh, popular sectors. You know, it was a coalition that perhaps only Chavez could really keep together. And uh, he also led an economy that was really running on, you know, on a lot of borrowed dollars and running a huge deficit. You know, he left a, a very serious crime problem. And it's been a very large, uh, a big task for Maduro. I think, you know, in political terms, he's kept the coalition together better than many of us thought he would. You know, all the rumors of, you know, Maduro being, having tenuous hold on power are not quite accurate in the sense that he has a lot of legitimacy within the coalition because he was designated by Chavez. So that really prevents anybody else, like Diego Alcabello, making a play for power. However, he has a very tenuous sort of authority within the coalition. It's very doesn't have a real decisive power within the coalition, and that's what's really kept this from, you know, kept economic, needed economic reforms from occurring. No, it's not, it shouldn't be rocket science to really keep, you know, uh, an oil economy going at a time of price, of high oil prices. But within the, within the, the, there's very different views within the government about what has to happen economically. And Maduro doesn't really have the authority to really say, okay, 
these people win and then let everybody else fall in line. It doesn't have that authority like Chavez did. And so that, that's led to real deadlock in, in economic policy. That has, has led to really uh, uh, serious, serious distortions uh, in, in the economy. I think, you know, in terms of citizen security, Maduro, one of the things he's done is, uh, um, you know, he's basically taken Chavez's civilian citizen security reform and uh, basically put military, uh, retired or active military officers at, in charge of that from top to bottom. That concludes our interview at the offices of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, with David Smildy editor of Wola's blog on Venezuela, and a professor at the University of Georgia. Coming up, more on the protests, Chavez and Venezuela. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Earlier this month, we visited with Julia Buxton via Skype between D.C. and where she was traveling in Sheffield in the United Kingdom. Buxton is the author of The Failure of Political Reform in Venezuela, and she is with Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. At the time, the Venezuelan protests were just starting. She gave us her impressions of those and her thoughts about the legacy of Hugo Chavez almost a year after his death. And obviously, in the build-up to these protests, by these ostensibly by the student movement, um, we have seen, you know, many of these the return to the kinds of claims and allegations that Venezuela is a dictatorship. Um, but problematically, we're seeing elements of the Venezuelan opposition move back to a strategy of trying to remove the government by force. I think this is a deeply, deeply unfortunate development. I think Enrique Capriles had begun to steer the anti-government movement towards a credible and constitutional path. Um, but the events of yesterday really demonstrated that there is this profound impatience and frustration in Venezuela with the democratic process um, and with constitutional options. So I think what we saw yesterday, the um, upheaval, the violence was profoundly regrettable. Um, and it really is my hope for the future of Venezuela going forward um, that the, this kind of moderate centrist position within the MUD opposition alliance gathered around, gathered around Enrique Capriles will be able to get the opposition back onto a path focused on voters' concerns and really not be resorting once again to violence and destabilization as a means of regime change in the country. Your book, The Failure of Political Reform in, in Venezuela, I take it that title is about the failure of political reform pre-Hugo Chavez. Venezuela was a, a landmark political system and it stood out in the Cold War period as a model of democracy. But it was a model of liberal democracy and it was a very limited democracy, which was really sustained by the oil revenues, which were generated by Venezuela's oil economy. And ultimately, when those oil revenues were no longer able to service the needs and the welfare expectations of its population, then that model began to, to really run into some quite serious problems, particularly in terms of the lack of meaningful representation in the parties. What, what is then the effect of, of Hugo Chavez on that democratic system? Do we have a, a better represented system 
now after Chavez? Um, or are there still challenges to democracy in Venezuela? Well, I think by the 1990s, when we have um, the emergence of Hugo Chavez through a military coup attempt at the beginning of that decade, the Venezuelan liberal democratic model was was really in, in very serious danger. It, I think the extent to which it could be called a democracy uh, was open to question by that time because we had such massive abstention in its election processes, huge alienation. We'd had the immense Caracazzo riots of 1989. So its qualification, as I said, as a democratic system, I think um, was certainly open to contestation. With Hugo Chavez um, and his election, what we have is the beginnings of reincorporating really excluded sectors of Venezuelan society into a political system that was seen as predominantly white, elitist um, and exclusionary. So I do think Chavez did bring a profound democratization of a political system that had begun to seriously fail and fail its population by the 1980s and 1990s. And I think the big shift that we see with Chavez is an emphasis more towards the socio-economic basis of a democracy. So I think it's a profound transformation in how we understand Venezuela's democracy, but also it was a very, very significant message for the rest of the region, uh, which, as you'll be aware, was going through profound discontent with the neoliberal economic models with which there had been experimentation in the 1980s and 1990s. Venezuela becomes the vanguard of that change for the rest of the region? I would suggest Venezuela certainly played that role. And I think Chavez, this is really for me the key legacy of Hugo Chavez, is that he transformed a regional debate. In the 1990s, in the early 2000s, the whole emphasis was on regional integration, but on the basis of free trade. We had NAFTA as the model. There was this effort to move towards a free trade area of the entire Americas. The emphasis was on neoliberalism. It was on free markets. Um, But ultimately, the costs of those kinds of strategies in terms of development, in terms of poverty, were very, very significant for, you know, the the poorest sectors of Latin American society. It didn't generate the economic distribution, the economic opportunities that were hoped for. So I think Chavez really came along and began to completely deconstruct the narrative about what constituted progress, what constituted development in Latin America, and really put himself in the vanguard of a major political change. He has has changed changed. the issue of inequality in Venezuela. The Gini coefficient points to that. All the markers say that, that Venezuela is a much more equitable system now than when he came into office. This was has been enormously contested for many years. Chavez's detractors were very, very reluctant to acknowledge the significant progress that has been made in reducing inequality. And what's particularly important, I think, in understanding the change in Venezuela is that development and social growth, social justice, isn't just measured by cash income. It's measured by things such as access to education, access to health and access to housing. Let's talk about the, the legacy now that we see of Chavez in Venezuela. He has presented the, the cult of personality that was surrounding Chavez has, has evolved into this more or less uh, portraying him as a socialist saint. Um, I, I don't think that's too far of a, of a metaphor to make. Um, is that a good thing for democracy in Venezuela? Well, I think um, most political parties in most countries tend to uh, try and identify and create these crusading heroes or heroines, as we had in the UK here with Margaret Thatcher, who the Conservative Party always cite 
In the United States, you have your crusading heroes. We see this on the Republican right with the figure of Ronald Reagan. So I think it's, it's inevitable, really, that periods of major ideological change are always associated with the leaders of that process of transformation. And some would say that there are good comparisons between Thatcher and Chavez in that a bit of an autocratic style in how to deal with democracy. Do you, do you think that that is a fair comparison? I would um, struggle to uh, really link Hugo Chavez and Margaret Thatcher, although I do see where you're going with that parallel. Um, I think it is about um, charismatic leaders, and I think... The challenge that we have really in the United Kingdom was that the process Margaret Thatcher took um, took us through was actually one of generating higher levels of inequality, greater levels of marginalization. Um, I would say that it eroded the quality of democracy in this country, um, whereas I would argue it was the, the absolute reverse in terms of Hugo Chavez. Thank you so much, Professor Julia Buxton of Central European University in Budapest, the author of The Failure of Political Reform in Venezuela, joining us via Skype from Sheffield in the UK, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. And now Latin American Perspectives with Macarena Saiz of the Washington College of Law at American University. As a Latina living in the U.S., I have gotten used to listening to comments on how bad it must be for women to live in Latin American countries, where the culture of machismo, a word that seems to sound exotic to American ears, is so prevalent. How awful it must be to live in a place where men are bossy, and women have to behave as traditional soap opera characters, dressing with little clothes and being feminine and sexy. In great part, it is precisely soap operas and the Latino TV stations in the U.S. that are to blame for this conception. After all, An American friend of mine was not so wrong when she told me how amazed she was that at any time of the day, any day of the week, Latino TV stations were showing a party with half-naked women dancing. Largely, the image is right. Latin American countries are male-dominated politically, economically, religiously, educationally, and culturally. Women suffer violence, suffer from social and even legal pressures to conform to gender stereotypes, suffer employment and labor wages discrimination, and in many countries their lives are worth not the same, but less than a fertilized egg. What bothers me is not that it's a mistaken conception of Latin America. It bothers me, however, the idea that Latin America is perceived as more patriarchal than the U.S., as if the exotic word machismo did not have an equivalent in English. It did not exist in the U.S. I come from Chile, a country that did not have a divorce law until 2005. At the same time, I come from a country where twice an agnostic doctor and single mother has been elected president with an incredible popular support, a country with an extended mandatory maternity leave and free and subsidized childcare centers. In the U.S., a single mother does not stand a chance as a presidential candidate, and middle-class mothers must make an economic calculation to see if it's worth working outside of the home. Forget about working for the pleasure of doing something you like. When you have two children and daycare may cost $1,000 per child, you better earn a lot of money. Similar to Latin America, men in the U.S. earn around 25% more than women performing the same job. With those numbers, it is obvious that mothers will stay home while fathers will bring the paycheck. In the U.S., women suffer violence and discrimination and have to conform to gender stereotypes too. American TV stations may be more diversified than Latino stations, showing female doctors, police officers, attorneys, and scientists. At the end, however, 
TV female characters also end up being normalized. Even the toughest female character will wait for the marriage proposal she dreams about, or will become a caring mother, or will keep being a tough woman, as long as she is a very sexy one. Unfortunately, Latin American countries are not the only male-dominated cultures. It is important to understand that the U.S. and most places around the world are also part of the same culture of machismo. The opinions expressed by Macarena Saez are her own and are not the official opinions of this program. Also now, a content disclaimer. During the fall of 2013, I conducted a speaking tour in Venezuela on free speech issues. That tour was partially funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. If you think that has had an effect on our discussions of Venezuela, or if you'd like to respond to our Latin American Perspectives commentary, please write us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may contact us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicAQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Ray Daniel, reporter Zach Cohen, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.